My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics. Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit, and we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities the transition to net zero societies entail. What solutions exist to help address climate change, and what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions? What are the key themes for COP26 and what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations? To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders and experts from academia and civil society worldwide. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Climate Briefing. I'm incredibly excited to be joined in person by my colleague Anna. Anna, how are you doing? Fine, I hardly recognise you. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't shaved today, but we're back in the office at Chatham House in a freezingly cold media studio. No idea what's happened. I thought we'd kept the heating on. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it's just keeping us awake. It's true, yeah, we're here, we're here. And it's just so nice to have have our old microphones back and, and not to be shouting at each other over Zoom and reliant on internet connections. I'm a bit worried, though, because you won't be able to mute me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big drawback, I It's guess. been a convenient, <laughs> a convenient tool. OK, but um, we've got a really fascinating couple of interviews for you this week where we're going to be talking about the relationship between development and climate action and whether those two areas of, of policy are necessarily sort of in conflict or whether actually you can do both at the same time. And we've got two fantastic guests lined up to speak to you about these issues. First off, you're going to hear an interview that I recorded with Fahana Yamin, who's an associate fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme here at Chatham House. And Fahana really laid out in incredibly interesting but broad terms the relationship between development and climate change and the ways in which the sort of dominant economic models for developing countries could be changed, you know, in order to deal with issues like climate change and to stop perpetuating this very carbon-intensive development model that was perpetuated by countries in Europe and North America. And beyond those challenges, we also spoke about the opportunities that there are in this year of COP26 to really start the conversation on systemic economic change that will support climate action. But then, Anna, who did you speak to? I spoke to Paul Steele, who is the chief economist at the International Institute for Environment and Development. And our conversation was a bit more narrow than the one you had with Farhana, but we spoke about a very timely and important topic, which is developing country debt. As I think many listeners will be aware, there was a growing concern even before COVID broke out about rising debt levels in developing countries. But the pandemic has made everything a lot worse. Mm. Governments are now forced to spend more on emergency health measures and social protection. But at the same time, incomes have fallen really significantly. Why does this matter for climate change? Well, Unsustainable debt levels and reduced fiscal space obviously impedes government spending in a range of different areas, but it also affects the ability to finance climate mitigation and adaptation. And a lot of the countries that are in trouble now 
they're highly vulnerable to climate change. Mm. And Paul and his colleagues have done a lot of thinking around how this so-called triple crisis of uh, debt, climate change and biodiversity destruction can be addressed simultaneously. Mm. So we spoke about that. Awesome. Well, let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined by Fahana Yamin, an associate fellow here at Chatham House and an advisor for the Climate Vulnerable Forum, among many other things, an internationally recognised environmental lawyer and climate change and development policy expert. Fahana has advised leaders and countries for many years, and so I'm very lucky, delighted to be welcoming her for this episode of The Climate Briefing. Fahana, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me and um, really nice to be part of the Chat House uh, Climate um, Environment team uh, to this podcast. Thank you. So it may seem a bit broad strokes this, but an unhelpful trope about climate action is that climate change and economic development are often presented as an either or choice. But this ignores the very real effects of climate change on the global economy. So I just wondered if you could begin by setting out the scale of the challenge here and what inaction on climate change could lead to in economic terms. Yeah, in economic terms, climate change is caused by virtually every single sector and every single activity Mm -hmm. from clothes to food to energy production to buildings, the way we move around. You know, climate change implicated Uh, as a cause from human society. So therefore, it is a huge economic challenge. It encompasses uh, the entire economy and more. And this has been recognised right at the very beginning. But the solution to it, whether it can be dealt with by traditional instruments of environmental regulation and control, like information, taxes, tradable permits, standard setting, that's really the issue, because actually those have succeeded better with specific pollution problems. They have not been very good, obviously, at tackling something so systemic, so pervasive, and which involves the entire economy and does so globally. So it's not just an issue affect all sectors. It affects every single part of the economy and every single human being, you know, in some way contributes and in some way bears the impacts. And obviously the equity implications are that not everyone contributes and not everyone will be impacted in the same way. And in general, the vulnerable groups within a country and the vulnerable countries globally, they will be impacted far more and are contributing the least. So that's a massive economic implications for the way in which we organise our economy, which goes straight to the heart of justice and inequality. So again, it's not just an economic question, it's also a social question. And so increasingly the social justice agenda, the environmental agenda, the way in which uh, race and class and other vulnerabilities like uh, gender are implicated, you know, are part and parcel of the climate problem as much as they are discrete problems that were being dealt with elsewhere. Thanks so much for that overview. That's uh, that's really great. I would like to come back to the climate justice question. We'll definitely cover that later um, in a bit more depth. But before I do, I just wondered whether you could give us your insight into the progress that has been made, if any, on these questions in, in recent years, obviously people present the Paris Agreement as a very pivotal turning point, and, and I guess we hope it is. But do you think that the conversation on this kind of system-wide economic change that you outlined, rather than as opposed to sort of specific individual policies targeted at specific sectors, do you think that conversation has moved on? Are we making progress on this? 
Absolutely, for sure. And as someone who's been involved now for 30 years, we've got three different treaties. Roughly each one took about 10 years to negotiate, enter into force and spawn action. And the the earlier treaties, especially the Kyoto Protocol and the Climate Convention, saw it very much as an ozone-depleting type of problem. Like there's some specific products, there's some specific sectors, here's a few specific manufacturers, let's all get them around the table. And hey, presto, let's then help the countries that don't have access to these new technologies. So I think the Climate Convention was based on the success of, you know, the Montreal Protocol or other air pollution instruments because it was seen as part of the atmosphere. And actually what we've learned over time and come to appreciate much more is actually it's a much bigger problem of economic development and what we mean by economic development and how that is organized on a global scale. So the problems got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the solutions need to be more fundamental and bigger and tied to the economy. They can't just be about an information campaign here and there. They can't just be about a set of manufacturers coming together. They can't just be about tradable permits, controlling carbon permits or offsetting, you know, because the whole of the economy, land use, agriculture, fashion, (laughs) transport is implicated. We have to involve all of those sectors. And actually none of them can shift fundamentally until the others shift. So that's why it's such a a systemic problem and those people who were using a more systemic lens and there were many and this ties in with your question about climate justice there were many who were uh, approaching this primarily as a, a development economic problem I guess they're in the right and the rest of us you know have caught on or that's become more more accepted and more widely accepted that we will have to bite the bullet and reinvent essentially what we mean by a good economy, what we mean by good governance for social justice, as well as treating this as a discrete environmental problem. That's very interesting. I'd like to come to this question of development then, because I mean, obviously, as you say, a lot of the problems that need to be addressed, obviously, occur in the developed world, I suppose, uh, more economically developed countries. But there is obviously this talk of of a green development agenda. And I, I wanted to ask whether you think we're seeing more tools, more practices being developed that will allow countries to develop in a more sustainable way, in a greener way, without having to go through the US-European model of of carbon-intensive development. Are the tools out there now that we can kind of forego that as long as, you know, if the will is there? I think they are out there now, and primarily that's largely the way in which energy systems have evolved to the point where clean energy, renewable energy, energy efficiency can be delivered at speed and at scale and and distributed, you know, through microgrids, battery storage and so forth, much more cheaply than the highly aggregated, centralised, capital-intensive, vertically integrated, you know, these are all top-down kind of approaches. So that's a massive change. So essentially the cost of renewables has tumbled in the last 15 years, especially in the last five, to be completely cost-effective and more than cost-effective, they would outshine and should be being phased in far quicker. And the reasons they're not is essentially to do with the regulations and the fiscal and policy sort of frameworks and the fact that actually there are vested interests in these industries now, coal, oil, gas, you know, the road building sector and behaviour change is sort of linked to that. And they have very much 
dug their heels in and resisted change. You know, they have also invented great new concepts. You know, social movements have invented like the idea of a just transition, for example, to try and move the scale and pace of change, but to protect those who would be impacted by change because we we need these sectors, which are essentially sunset sectors and should not really exist, let alone be supported by our taxpayers' efforts. So that's really the big discrepancy that they have huge influence and power and people vote for present jobs. They don't necessarily always vote for future jobs. That's quite difficult for them to imagine and see in different industries. And I think, you know, the scale of things is, you know, we have another G7 meeting coming up in June. You know, in 2009, in the Obama's first year, President Obama's first year, we had a historic G7 summit, which, you know, promised to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. And so that was seen as a, you know, a huge win. It was just before the run up to what was then going to be our Paris, the Copenhagen in 20, uh, 2009. And there was so little progress made on that. So we still have fossil fuel subsidies across the globe going on a scale of two to one to fossil fuel industries and infrastructure that's related to that. So essentially on coal, gas, oil, cement, road-based car-based mobility instead of energy, energy efficiency mobility, you know, for people who may not ever want to buy a car or be in a position to buy a car. And, you know, in the latest round of Build Back Better and and the fiscal support packages that governments have put together to deal with tackle COVID, reinflating the economy, $205 billion went to the fossil fuel energy and $135 billion to clean energy. And so that's today. I mean, that's in 2021. That uh, And some countries have done better than others, but by and large, the, tr- the mindset that favours existing players has meant that they have much more leverage, power, corporate power, lobbying power. And again, my personal learning and my own, you know, much more rigorous activism is to challenge that, is to challenge why should now you know, 10 years after the the summit in Copenhagen, why are we still talking about our taxpayers' money favouring industries and sectors that are massive polluters and have already benefited from, you know, taxpayer money? These are sunset industries that need to now close, phase out and do so rapidly with some humility and, and pay back for the huge amounts of profits. These are very profitable industries, yeah, extracted Uh, on the back of environmental damage and human rights breaches in many parts of the world. And now they're going to get off scot-free or they want yet another set of subsidies in order to stop the pollution. And and that seems really manifestly unfair and a a real waste of money, frankly, from the from the taxpayer side. So um, I guess that's where we are today, you know, it's like, are we really capable as human societies, uh, you know, people in the UK, the US, there are different pathways and the US, it's very, very pleasing that actually the, the Biden administration supported by a huge climate vote from the black, brown, youth, younger uh, constituencies, both across the Democrats and the Republicans, that's what will put them in office, are going to use state power and the financial instruments and try and turn investment round. Its investment hasn't flowed in quite the speed and scale and hopefully with COP26, with London being a major financial centre, you know, we will make good some of the delays that have tarred progress internationally and resulted in 
frankly, a runaway climate and a and a set of vulnerable countries who are seeing, you know, broken promise after broken promise, but whether it's in support or in re a reduction of greenhouse gases. Thanks, that's so sobering. Um, <laughs> but it leads us on to another topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is this relatively new concept of, of green growth, new at least in sort of policy circles. It seems to be sort of gaining prominence and, and gaining traction. And this idea that in some way we can incentivize climate action and the development of new technologies that are less carbon intensive through basically making it profitable for companies to do so and to push the innovation that way. I just wondered whether you see this as something that holds a lot of promise. What are the opportunities that the green growth agenda provides? But at the same time, based on what you've just said as well, is there a danger that it just becomes another way to generate revenue for the vested interest that you spoke about already? I think focusing on the word growth is a very big problem because our indicators and metrics and the mindsets that are associated with that are too blunt and don't yet take into account the ecological sustainability and the social sustainability. So we're literally result, you know, causing a, an unequal planet which is uninhabitable, and that's not clean, and, and that kind of growth isn't what we want. So I think in some ways we need to ditch, you know, concepts like that and move towards well-being, regenerative economies, circular economies. We need to, you know, adopt the donut economics and, and reframe and refresh new vocabularies because that's, you know, trying to appeal to that is still appealing to this idea that we've got to keep growing at all costs and that, the, the models of commerce and, frankly, capitalism that underpin that are what generate, you know, wealth and well-being, and they don't. All these things are delinked now. Well-being isn't the same as wealth accumulation, isn't the same as uh, well-being for the planet or its peoples. So it's, I, I'm of the mindset that, you know, let's have that discussion, let's debunk this, and I think let's tackle some of our fears. You know, we have a lot of fear about going into the unknown, but we really are being called upon and have this massive opportunity now. And there was the aftermath of COVID, which will continue to, to really look again at whether more or less the expansionist, nature extractive sort of project uh, and mentalities that we conceived of 300, 400 years ago are really the best that we can do. And increasingly, most people think they're not. You know, we need a realignment between the state, between people, between nature, between future generations. And I think adding the word clean to growth doesn't really do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. We don't have much time. So I just wanted to ask you one more question then, which is this rethink that you're calling for, that you've called for throughout this episode, really is going to require some serious international cooperation, the likes of which we sort of rarely see, unfortunately. But I just wondered, you've already mentioned that this is a very important year. There are many important summits this year, obviously culminating with COP26 in the winter. Could you maybe tell us what you think? Firstly, what if you were the president of, <laughs> of COP26 this year, like what would you be putting on the agenda? What do you think needs to be changed fundamentally and what can be changed this year? And then secondly, what do you think is likely to happen? <laughs> The challenge is to make the gap smaller and smaller and smaller between what's needed and what's happening. And sadly, you know, that's where there's been too big a gap between accepting what science was saying, what the planet and its environment and its young people and its vulnerable people wanted and what was being delivered. 
so yeah let's all work to reduce that gap and that would be my number one uh, priority as COP president I've actually got three very simplified strategies that I would pursue as COP president and I'm putting them out there so number one 2030 is the new 2050 so 2030 is the date by which all richer countries, the G20, which contribute 80% of emissions and have most of the wealth and supply chains at their hand, 2030 is the phase-out date that they should really be aiming at. Yes, some things may phase out in real time later in their 40s or you know 50s, but actually you have to set that dial with full intent now. You have to put those regulations in place. You have to put those policies in place. So 2030 is the date. And it's not just 50% reductions by 2030. I think go for all of them. And that would be the idea of a Green New Deal or Industrial Revolution. That in 10 years, you overhaul everything. These are linked sectors. So that's number one. Number two, nature needs reparations. Nature needs reparation. Reparation means healing. It means repair. It means to mend. It means, you know, to stop causing harm first and foremost. And nature is calling for healing is calling for harm to be stopped. Vulnerable countries are saying, take your foot off the growth pedal because it is causing an alarming degree of degradation and destruction on the already fragile world. Uh, and part of that means addressing the issue of loss and damage. So loss and damage is already happening on a vast scale and it is futile and causes mistrust for the developed world, for the richer world to continually try and sidestep it or put it in some technical box and to not face the what must be faced, which is that hundreds of years of excessive pollution and frankly, the colonial imperialist history of empires has resulted in some parts of the world suffering huge amounts of damage and that must be made good because people deserve truth and honesty and my third strategy and, and, and guidance is community is the new cop. And by that, I mean that, you know, we can't just wait and put all our faith in the basket of UN summits and these global treaty processes. We can't even do that for our national processes, which have often been, you know, very top down. We must start, you know, the everyday transition. And for that, you need people everywhere to start thinking, what can they do? What can they do faster? What are they prepared to change and give up? What are they prepared to experiment with and innovate? You know, where are they? And you need new forms of governance. And I think COVID has made us realize that, you know, our uh, global economy, uh, the way in which we govern ourselves, the way in which we see ourselves is, is lacking in terms of depth and rootedness and connection. And people want that. That's one of the things they really want, actually, all over the world. They've had to rely on family, friends, and actual neighbors who they've never spoken to, to, to help. And I think that our government systems have always been tilted too far in favor of the international and the national and the more formal political systems. And actually we've never given the space and the time and the energy for community to, to really be a guiding thing. So I would start with many more hyper-local initiatives I would start with uh, supporting, devolving, giving powers to citizens to shape whether it's their ward or parish council, their boroughs or their cities. And that's a lot of the work I've been doing over the last two years since I've taken, you know, I feel I've got to walk the walk, talk the talk. So I've been active very much in community-based 
approaches and, and bringing these big frameworks like climate change, like the sustainable development goals, like the biodiversity, conservation, wilderness, recycling, the circular economy, bringing all these big concepts. What, what does your high street look like when you do that? Apply it there. And if your high street is still looking exactly the same, you probably haven't done any of those things properly because it should look different. It should start to look different. You should feel it. And that's what I felt was missing in my life. I felt I was doing a lot of this stuff, writing great reports, attending fantastic seminars at Chatham House and contributing. But actually, I didn't feel all the changes in my day-to-day -day life. And I didn't. I wanted to make a bigger presence of all of these things in every locality, in every every bit of the world. So that, that would be my ambition for the COP presidency, that actually they set up a process and a structure where everyday life and decisions are made by everyday citizens in normal settings, not at COPs. No, nobody has to go to Glasgow <laughs> to do that, or at least some people. Anyway, those would be my three, three framings. Ah, the end of COP. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> then we'd be out of a podcast, Fahana. <laughs> no, no, we'd have even more. We'd have people-led ones. And, you know, the, the cops are changing and they, they're going to have to because the kind of things that we were doing and, you know, with 20, 30,000 people maybe sometimes turning up for half a day mm. were unsustainable in every sense. You know, they were overblown, unsustainable. Global regulatory machinery has to happen. It wasn't being helped particularly by... A whole set of dynamics we need lots and lots of those initiatives but you know they must happen in the where people are and the majority of people are in the global south and they're not in you know or represented by these sorts of sorts of things and issues like you know water food with resilience all of these lend themselves to a more localized hyper local you know approach not a one-size-fits-all approach great well Bahani, i mean thanks so much for joining us on the climate briefing thank you it's great great talking to you as well So I'm really delighted to be joined by Paul Steele, who is Chief Economist at the International Institute for Environment and Development. Paul has more than 20 years experience working for international organizations, including the UNDP, the European Union, the World Bank and the IUCN. He's also worked for the British government and the Sri Lankan government. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Sure, great to be with you. So in our conversation, we're going to be talking about possible solutions to the triple crisis of debt, climate change, and biodiversity destruction in developing countries. So a really, really important topic. As many listeners would be aware, developing country debt had been a growing concern even before the pandemic broke out. But COVID-19 has made everything a lot worse. So Paul, you and your colleagues at the IID, you've done quite a lot of thinking around how this triple crisis could be addressed. And I wanted to start by asking you to outline what it is that you're proposing. Okay, thanks, Anna. So as you said, uh, the uh, debt situation in many low-income countries was getting worse pre-COVID and has rocketed uh, as a result of the pandemic. At the same time as climate change crisis and biodiversity crisis and emergency so what we, along with uh, many other think tanks and now increasingly uh, country governments and uh, international organizations have been advocating is what we've been calling debt management for climate and nature outcomes. So that's a combination of both debt relief and new issuance of bonds 
that would be spent on climate and nature investments to address the climate and nature crisis. So that, in a nutshell, is what we've been advocating. And as I say, it's now increasingly being picked up by other organisations and governments, but I'm sure we'll come to that in a later discussion. Thanks. Could you please go into a bit more debt around how it would work? So basically, in terms of debt restructuring, a country would, instead of paying debt servicing to its creditors, it would invest that money in climate action or in biodiversity. That could include renewable energy or climate resilience investments such as climate smart agriculture or, for example, uh, watershed management and tree planting campaigns, which are labour intensive and good for employing people who've lost their livelihoods post uh, COVID. So in order to monitor success of these climate and nature investments, the uh, debtor country governments would agree with their creditors what are called key performance indicators, which would be a set of criteria against which they would be measured and against which the debt relief would be provided. If it's a case of new issuance of new bonds, i.e. new debt, which not all countries, but some countries might be willing to take on, then it would be a similar approach and we would have a, a process of performance bonds for climate and nature, which would be linked to uh, achievement of climate and nature outcomes. But that would only be for the key performance indicators. They would still be able to use the bulk of the money for increasing fiscal space to reduce debt so that it would improve their general debt distress position, which, as you said, is quite challenging in many countries. So this concept of debt for climate or debt for nature swaps, that's not entirely new. I know the Seychelles, for instance, completed such a, they were engaged in such a deal a few years ago. How is what you and your colleagues are proposing now, how does that differ from these type of efforts that have been kind of tried out before? In two main ways, both at the international level and at the uh, national level. Starting at the national level, the past debt for nature swaps, which existed quite a lot in the 1980s and 90s, were relatively small, $20, $30 million, let's say, often led by international organizations and non-governmental organizations, such as the Nature Conservancy in the US. Uh, So they were relatively small scale. And even the Seychelles deal was $27 million in 2018 for climate for debt swap. The idea now is to have a much larger upscaled approach where much larger amounts of debt would be exchanged in order to address the very large amounts of debt that countries face. And one main way of upscaling would be to channel the money through government budgets or what is known as budget support. This is a mechanism that the World Bank uses in their development policy-based loans and the IMF uses in their macro economic support to countries for balance of payments. So it's a well-known mechanism that the international system uses for transferring funds and can be used in this uh, upscaled debt for climate and nature management approach. The other main change would be at the international level. I already alluded to the fact that in the 1990s and uh, 2000s, there was a big debt relief initiative led by the then Labour government in the UK, which had a global 
initiative called the Highly Indebted Poor Country Initiative for Debt Relief. So we're advocating for a similar global international initiative of debt management for climate and nature outcomes, which would create the uh, overall policy space for this uh, debt relief and debt restructuring at the international level. I'm wondering what type of sums we're, we're talking about if you compare it to what is being provided, for instance, by the multilateral climate funds, how does the money that can be freed up for climate purposes through these type of debt deals compare to those type of funds? I know it's hard to say an exact figure, that's impossible, but it would be good to get some kind of grasp. No, it's a very good point. I mean, currently the Green Climate Fund, which is the main funder of climate change, although some of the regional development banks also have money, is about... Uh, at least it was intended to be about $10 billion, although it's fallen short because uh, some countries, particularly the US, have been slow to contribute. And the aim is obviously to uh, achieve the target under the Paris Agreement of $100 billion spending by this year on, uh, on climate finance. In terms of the amount of money that might be achievable under debt management for climate and nature outcomes, Debt is uh, literally trillions of dollars, and each country has often several billion dollars worth of debt outstanding. So we're talking orders of magnitude larger sums, and potentially if debt management for climate and nature outcomes picked up, it could dwarf the amount of money that is currently being spent through the Green Climate Fund and other channels on climate change. So what are the main challenges when it comes to implementing debt management for climate and nature outcomes? Good question. I mean, it's obviously early days and the, uh, the thinking is only evolving rapidly. Um, some pilots are starting, but while interest has been expressed, uh, the actual implementation remains to be seen apart from a few pilot uh, and relatively small schemes like in the Seychelles, which you referred to. I think the main challenge is getting the creditors on board. It's likely that debtor countries would be interested in schemes that reduce their debt service payments in some way and allow them to invest domestically in climate and nature outcomes. But creditors who own the debt have to be convinced. And the debt position has changed a lot since the HIPIC initiative. In particular, during the HIPIC time, most of the debt was to Western governments. Now, a lot of the debt, particularly to low-income countries, is to China, and also in some of the more middle-income countries, to uh, the private sector. And both China and the private sector present very different challenges to bring them on board. But there are ways in terms of China, they're now committed to a, a net zero target by 2060, so they may see ways of achieving this by investing overseas. And the private sector may also have commitments to net zero and be willing to join an international initiative that commits to improved climate outcomes. I was about to ask that, actually. It sounds so good in theory. But yeah, I was interested in knowing more about the international discussions, how this is progressing. What about the IMF, for instance, and, and the World Bank? Are they picking this up as well? I mean, what's, what's concretely happening at the international level? So there's quite a lot of movement. The uh, World Bank and IMF, along with the OECD and the United Nations, have set up a platform for debt, climate and nature, which includes some debtor governments as well as a number of creditors 
primarily from Western governments, but they are also talking to China and the private sector. So to bring in those new players, which I've just mentioned. And this platform is planning to roll out pilots in a number of countries, maybe uh, eight to 10 countries over the next three to six months, and then to launch this international initiative, hopefully, which I've already mentioned in October 2021 at the annual meetings of the World Bank and IMF. So in only a few months, there should be real international commitments on this. At the same time, the World Bank president and the IMF managing director have already gone on record mentioning this platform and committing that they would link debt to climate action going forward. And the IMF managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, is herself an environmental economist and as many of you will have seen, is very committed to bringing climate change to the heart of the IMF's uh, business and operations. And then in terms of the US, there's obviously been a, a sea change in terms of the climate perceptions with the President Biden's administration. And the recent executive order of the president includes, and I quote, to develop a strategy for how the International Monetary Fund can promote financing programs, economic stimulus packages, and debt relief initiatives that are aligned with and support the goals of the Paris Agreement. So the US executive order makes explicit mention of debt relief initiatives aligned to the Paris Agreement. How, if this platform is launched then in October 2021, what type of impact do you think that that could have on the dynamics in the COP process, for instance? Well, potentially quite significant, because as I've said, the amount of money that could change hands if debt management for climate and nature were to go forward could significantly dwarf the money under the Green Climate Fund and be more than the uh, Paris commitment to $100 billion that should be spent on climate finance, which now needs to be increased at the Glasgow COP, the target for that uh, climate finance So it could unlock the doors for new sources of climate finance for low-income countries, which which haven't been so forthcoming and which will be challenging in the economic downturn in OECD countries as well as in low-income countries. So I think it potentially could be very positive for the COP. And we hope that the UK government, and in particular, UK Treasury, will see this uh, importance of debt management for climate and nature and make it an explicit uh, part of the Glasgow COP outcomes. Are there any indications that they are doing that? Uh, There are definitely very active discussions within the UK government. I mean, apparently the UK is already looking at a pilot in Pakistan to have some kind of debt management linked to a, a very large tree planting campaign that the Pakistan government is undertaking post covid so that is under underway in terms of UK debt on a bilateral basis. But in terms of an international process, the UK is a member of this international platform, which I've already alluded to, and a number of parts of government, including DEFRA, the Cabinet COP team, and HMT, the Treasury, are engaged in discussions, and as well as FCDO, to decide the UK position pre-COP. So, Paul, there was another thing I wanted to discuss with you when I have you on the line, which has a link to this, but is a broader discussion. It's about 
the conversations going on within the IMF on a new issuance of special drawing rights. I was wondering if you could, well, first explain what is a special drawing right, and then perhaps outline to our listeners what role a new allocation of special drawing rights could play in promoting a green recovery in developing countries. So special drawing rights are the reserve currency of the IMF. And uh, at times of kind of global economic distress, the IMF get, can get agreement from the board of governors of the IMF to release special drawing rights to be spent on improving the macroeconomic balance situation of the, of the world's economy. So there was, as with so many things, a stop on this development under the uh, previous US administration, but it's now been opened up by the new US Treasury, Janet Yellen, who has asked the IMF board to consider issuing $650 billion worth of the IMF uh, special drawing rights. And that's $650 billion, not million. So these are, these are very large and significant amounts of money. And recently, the group of seven and then the group of 20 countries that meet to uh, discuss the world's economy and agree on global economic policy have approved this request so it will go back to the IMF board. And the expectation is that the special drawing rights of about 650 billion, as I've said, would be issued in August of this year, so only a couple of months away. But the way these rights would be distributed is according to the quota allocations of the IMF voting rights. So the richer countries, in particular the US, but also countries like US and France and Germany and so on, would get the lion's share of the money. So there's now a very active debate about how to reallocate the special drawing rights so they benefit low-income countries who have faced the uh, economic challenge of the pandemic. And uh, there are a number of proposals on the table as to how this could be done. Obviously, there's a lot of focus now on the pandemic and the need for immediate financing for the vaccine and vaccine uh, manufacture and distribution, particularly under the COVAX international process. The IMF also has a, a scheme called the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust Fund, which could receive up to $50 billion for low-income countries. Then thirdly, there's a discussion going on simultaneously about replenishing funds for the World Bank under what is known as the International Development Association or the IDA, which is due at the end of this year, and which lends money to the uh, poorest 74 countries of the world. And finally, there might be a way to link these special drawing rights to the topic we were discussing earlier of debt management for climate and nature, in particular providing the IMF and multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank, funds to release their own debt for uh, climate and nature outcomes. So uh, my own organization, the International Institute for Environment and Development, as well as increasingly others, are discussing how special drawing rights, or SDRs as they're known, can be spent on an inclusive green recovery, which is distributed and reallocated on the basis of climate vulnerability 
or for spending on climate and nature. And uh, just to give an example, uh, recently I was listening to uh, a conference a couple of days ago, and the president of the African Development Bank committed to uh, support for special drawing rights going on an inclusive green transition. So there are increasing numbers of of uh, policymakers buying into this idea. This is so important and interesting. Are you hopeful there will be this type of reallocation, or is it a really uh, tricky discussion with lots of countries blocking? I think now that things have changed in the US, obviously that's a big lead. The US haven't indicated which reallocation proposal they favor, but with $650 billion dollars, there's a chance that a number of proposals could go forward. So including the uh, the money, which is obviously needed for vaccines and COVAX, money for the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust Fund of the, of the IMF, which allows quick money to go to four countries, as well as, as the same money for the World Bank replenishment and for the uh, green and inclusive recovery. So I think uh, there's a possibility that a range of proposals may go forward but we need to see how the debate evolves over the next three months, because the expectation is that while the SDRs will be issued in August, the reallocation may take place a few months later in October, which again would be nicely timed for the climate COP in Glasgow in November. So again, if some of the money was spent on climate change, it would be a very strong signal that the world is really committed to climate resilience and achieving net zero in the uh, immediate term. Paul Steele, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for having me. Well, that takes us to the end of this episode. And that was a really fascinating interview, Anna. Um, Just wondered what your key takeaway was there from your chat with Paul. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed our conversation. And I think one of the things I take away and I found particularly interesting is that this idea of kind of linking debt relief to climate action is not just something that, you know, people in think tanks, people like us, Ben, Mm. are writing and thinking about. It's actually something that is gaining traction among governments and among international organizations. So, yeah, I, I say watch this space. That would be my takeaway. Nice. How about you? Nice. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Paul's interview, but I also, I felt there was a really important message that came from my conversation with Fahana as well, which is something that has been echoed in previous episodes of The Climate Briefing. Actually, many of our guests have kind of given me this impression, which is that increasingly climate change is not a problem for which there are no solutions. Like broadly, we do know the things that need to be done in order to mitigate global warming (laughs) but what Fahana made incredibly clear particularly important ahead of COP26 is that actually now we need to coordinate the global will to do these things it's not a kind of mystery it's something that governments and and non-government actors need to just embrace and and enact and I thought that was quite a clear message that came from that (laughs) Uh, obviously she put it much clearer than I did so (laughs) so apologies but that was my that was my impression 
Cool. Well, thanks very much for listening in. We'll be back soon again with another interesting and informative episode of The Climate Briefing. In the meantime, please feel free to listen back to previous episodes. You can find them on Spotify, Libsyn, the Chatham House website, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Until next time, bye. Thanks for listening.